Welcome to this month's Space Policy Edition. I'm Casey Dreyer, the Chief of Space Policy here at the Planetary Society. And I am joined by, and I should say in person, literally, uh, and standing in front of me right now, is the Planetary Society's Director of Government Relations, Jack Curley. Hi, Casey. Good to see you in person. Yeah, I guess I've, to all of our listeners, I have successfully confirmed that Jack is not an advanced AI that has been representing itself to us uh, via computer screen over the past three months working here for the Planetary Society. He is, in fact, real and uh, has been doing a great job here in D.C. Jack, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here with you, Casey. It's been a great first few months on the job and really hit the ground running with the budget process in February and now on onward and upward for uh, fiscal year 2024. It's been an exciting time, let's say. <laughs> well, yeah. To say the least. Yeah. 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 In addition to my special co-host this month, I should say that our guest that will be joining me here in just a few minutes on this month's show is Jacob Hak Misra. He is an astronomer, very interesting thinker and writer on particularly issues of SETI and techno signatures. And I was particularly struck by a paper he had written a few years ago that examined the variety of policy implications based on the fact that the consequences of meeting another extraterrestrial civilization are fundamentally unknowable. And that may sound <laughs> almost almost trite as a conclusion, but he actually breaks down there's three really interesting consequences of this about how we then approach not just SETI, but the concept of active SETI, of basically broadcasting our existence out there in hopes that we catch the attention of another civilization should it exist. And again, this is such a just a fun area of discussion and Jacob is, a, again, a very deep thinker on these topics, has written extensively on it, and brings a really solid background of astronomy and physics into this discussion. And it is really fun to have. I hope you'll stick around for that discussion, which will be here in just a few minutes. But in the meantime, Jack, before you and I jump into something else that is actually very pertinent as we record this, which is the debt ceiling, I think we're supposed to do a plug. For the Planetary I Society. Right. <laughs> so, I think you're right. If Sarah were here, she would, at this point, be making an impassioned pitch for why you should become a member of the Planetary Society, if you're not, which is that the Planetary Society is not just our home organization of, of Jack and I and the organization that pays our salaries, <laughs> but something we just personally believe in to the point where we have dedicated our careers to advocating for you as a member, a potential member, and its ideals of space science, of exploration, of planetary defense, and of course, the search for life, which is the big topic of this month's episode. Jack, you've come into this organization, well, you were a, a member mm -hmm. and still are, and a, a, a volunteer, yes, none of us here at the Society get free membership <laughs> as, as staff, but you were a volunteer for many years and, and now work for us. Membership, what does it mean to you in terms of why it's a valuable thing? Well, it really is the, the Planetary Society, really is the preeminent organization that advocates for these things, these values that we hold so dear, the, the search for life among them, planetary defense, the exploration of not just our solar system, but advancements in astrophysics and astronomy and, you know, the engineering marvels that surround us every day that Sometimes we can get lost in the day-to-day -day activities, but we have, as a species, been able to achieve such phenomenal things, I think in large part because there are organizations like the Planetary Society that collectivize sort of our passion for space science and exploration 
And to have an organization that is so focused on the membership, on providing value to that membership and listening to and responding to the voices of our members is very powerful. And is one of the things that kept me involved for so many years and keeps me engaged and excited to continue to do this work, even given all the, the pressures of the political environment that NASA and space exploration in general can find itself in at times, that truly we are advancing our civilization, our species as a spacefaring species. And there's nothing more uplifting than being involved in an organization that firmly believes in the future of humanity. As the Planetary Society does. It's a good optimistic viewpoint. Great point. So It, it is. Yeah. Not often shared by my colleagues in D.C. <laughs> yeah. So, if you share the fact that you want humanity to continue on and have this wonderful future, please join us at the Planetary Society, planetary.org slash join. Uh, if you're already a member, thank you so much. We really do honestly appreciate it. It makes a huge, huge difference. One more aspect of this, and then we'll move on, which is membership really is the core of our organization financially. Mm -hmm. We are not dependent on corporate backers. We don't take government funding. It's really just individuals that really literally enable us to exist. And that independence just is a true rare entity here in Washington, D.C. Invaluable. And for every new member that joins, it just amplifies our message tenfold. We're going tomorrow uh, out to a number of Senate offices. And the first thing we'll be saying when we go into those offices is how many members are in their state, how many constituents they have are Planetary Society members. So that's the plug. Thanks for listening to that part. And but again, it's just it's really, truly important. So thanks for considering it. Now let's move on. Jack, as you and I record this, we just passed a, a big procedural vote in the House of Representatives. The Senate has yet to come. Actually, the House has yet to vote on it finally, but we think it's going to pass, and this is a deal to lift the debt ceiling of the United States. It's been a relatively uncertain path, I guess, up to this point. Is it worth going into the details of this? I don't know. The debt limit, I think maybe that's the important part of this, is that the debt limit is separate from the appropriations process. This is money that has already been allocated, that we have a commitment to spend, X number of dollars through the regular This is money that Congress approved already and directed the federal government to spend through legislation and the appropriations process. This used to be relatively standard because, again, the money has already been appropriated. Mm -hmm. The U.S. government's told to spend it. But it's more political and more partisan now, and so there's sometimes a division on if we're going to raise it, which we have to do to maintain the U.S.'s credit, full faith and credit in the United States uh, Treasury, that there's some politicking that happens, let's say. So at this point, it looks like the deal lifting the debt ceiling or suspending it in this case for the next two years, it's going to freeze this part of U.S. government spending called non-defense discretionary. It's going to freeze it at 2023 levels, and then it'll grow by 1% the year after that. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's it, not a huge cut that we originally feared, but it really restricts the amount of money that goes to agencies like the space program like the National Science Foundation, like the Department of Energy, things that tend to intersect with our space priorities. So again, it's not a huge cut. Like we were, I think we're what, 22% is what we're originally that was looking the, at. That was the amount feared was a, a 22% cut across the board. And now we're at a flat. Mm-hmm. But what's the problem with this? My dollar doesn't go as far in <laughs> fiscal year 2024 as it did in fiscal year 2023. Has anyone else noticed that eggs are slightly more expensive right now than they used to be? Well, that's the same thing is true for spacecraft parts. 
for highly skilled engineers, uh, for management, for everything that feeds into the supply chain for spacecraft, they've experienced inflation too. Mm -hmm. And NASA's dollars do not go as far as they used to. And so keeping uh, the the original proposal for increasing NASA uh, next year by 7% basically would have accounted for this inflation. And again, we actually don't know what NASA is going to get yet. So this is, I think, the one rub here, right? So the pie that NASA takes its slice from is going to remain the same size. So NASA could feasibly still get a 7% increase next year if Congress wants to give it to them. But something else has to then accommodate that difference. And I think that's the problem. The pie is shrinking a little bit. And everything else that was supposed to grow also can't just grow at that same size. So something has to get cut somewhere or kept the same somewhere. But even if NASA, if they apply that evenly to every single program in, in the U.S. government, because inflation has happened, NASA's dollars just won't go as far. So assuming this various levels of assumptions here, NASA is you know, likely seeing maybe a 7% decrease in buying power. Is that a fair way to characterize things? I think that would be because... At the end of the day, $25 billion in 2024 doesn't get you the same $25 billion yeah. that it, what it got yeah. you in I mean, we're seeing this already with Veritas being in, indefinitely delayed. Uh, we're seeing this also then with real cost growth on top of inflation happening with Mars sample return, with Artemis, components of that. We're seeing the squeeze happen to a variety of planetary missions. We're seeing potential delays of Dragonfly and Da Vinci. And, of course, research, basic research for planetary science is really tough already. And this was under the gross scenario that they were going to have to struggle with this. And so the long and short of it is, I think it's fair to say that we don't know exactly yet. So the appropriations process can basically begin now, what we're used to seeing in terms of the actual congressional thing, now that we know our actual size of the pie. And... How it's going to get divided at this point is anyone's guess. I guess, Jack, you've got your work cut out for you over the next few months. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it all it all comes down to, and what you, you might see in the news, those 302B allocations. Mm, everyone's favorite. Everyone's yeah, favorite. Allocation. You know, four-letter word in government. <laughs> the 302B <laughs> allocations is going to determine what is appropriated, or I guess the amount that appropriators will be able to divide between their agencies for the NASA subcommittee. Right. So NASA's wrapped up in the Commerce, Justice, and Science subcommittee of appropriations, and their allocation is going to determine how much they have to work with, what is the headroom that CJS is going to be able to work with to set the budgets for the Department of Commerce, Department of Justice, NASA, NSF, NOAA, and all the other related agencies that right. fall under that umbrella. And so what I think the pie is what's about $701 billion next year. Is yeah. If this all goes through, that'll be the size for, that'll be divided among 11 different subcommittees of appropriations. 12. Well, the 12th one is Department of Defense, Right, which gets you're right. The eight hundred and they don't get a cut. <laughs> this is just they the non-defense three point five percent increase. Increase, yeah. So that was the deal. So we're looking at eleven different subcommittees splitting that seven hundred billion dollars, and it was originally supposed to be something like seven hundred thirty-five. So again, it doesn't sound huge on the outset, but given inflation, given the fact that other agencies and then politically, NASA very rarely, unfortunately, rises to the top of the attention for a lot of members of Congress. And we've lost some of NASA's biggest champions in the hierarchy who had leadership positions and appropriations. This is going to be a tough year. 
That doesn't mean things will all go to hell. <laughs> I mean, because also what NASA could do within it, what they could do, what Congress could do, is rope off certain areas. So they could say Mars sample return gets exactly the increase it requested. Artemis could get exactly the same increase as requested, but then every other part of NASA may need to absorb the difference. And that'll be right. I mean, so that's this is the set of decisions that we believe NASA is going to have to face over the next few months. So again, we don't know anything yet, but we're going to be, in terms of that level of detail, this is what the process has to unfold. But this is why I think we're going to be needing you, uh, if you're listening to this as a either a society member or just a space advocate, it's going to be really important to begin communicating these priorities during the next few months now. Because this is when the rubber is going to hit the road and they're going to really be going through this, these tough set of trade-offs. And I firmly believe, particularly now, we need to be investing in science and investing in U.S. industry, investing in our, in our STEM workforce in this country. And we do that by going into space. That may not be a surprise to people, but I <laughs> I don't know. I had my doubts. Yeah, your doubts. All right. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, you know, maybe this is the time to cut, but no. And so I, this is this is a really going to be an important year, I think, and, and a big turning point, because again, I think this is really going to set the rest of the decade, whether the US is going to be able to return to the moon this decade, whether we'll be able to really aggressively pursue sample return, still go to Venus, all these other great, huge opportunities we have, right? Sitting right in front of us. So we will need your help coming up. You will expect uh, emails from us in the next few months asking for opportunities to write or contact a member of Congress. I should also say the day of action. September 17th and 18th. Of this year, planetary.org slash day of action. Registration's open now. And this is a great opportunity to meet directly face-to-face with your member of Congress or their staff and really share your priorities with them. And anecdotally speaking, for the day of action... It is one of our most successful programs we run here at the Planetary Society, and it's also one of the most impactful. And that is something that I see on a weekly basis, is some member of Congress or their staff mentions meeting with a space advocate from the Planetary Society. We make these lasting impacts, and the last time we did this in person was in 2020. Yeah, right before before COVID hit. (laughs) Right, February 2020. What a time. This September, we have that opportunity again in a critical funding year. Like you're saying, Casey, we have a lot of exciting missions that need our support right now. Mars Sample Return, Veritas, Artemis, Neo Surveyor, the list goes on and on. Dragonfly, I want to make sure I give them a shout out as well. Now is the time to make our voice heard as really the only non, non-commercial, non-profit, independent space advocacy organization out there today. We hold a lot of power in these in these meetings and these these conversations with members of Congress and their staff. So if you're on the fence, I'm telling you, this is your opportunity. If you want to see Mars sample return by the end of this decade, now's the time. Come to DC with us September 17th, 18th, planetary.org slash day of action to learn about how to do that. There are ways to participate online if you can't travel or don't have the resources to do so. So we'll be following up with those as well. Jack, I think that about covers it for for debt ceiling. We'll be talking about the consequences of this next month for sure. But yeah, let's go to our interview now with Jacob Hawk Misra. Just as a reminder, he's an astronomer, senior research investigator at the Blue Marble Space Institute. He's part of the American Geophysical Union, the International Astronomical Union, 
very deep thinker on SETI and techno signatures. And we are going to be talking here about the policy implications of the fact that we do not know <laughs> whether <laughs> meeting an extraterrestrial intelligence would be good or bad. And again, really interesting discussion consequences from that. So let's listen to this discussion with Jacob right now. Really looking forward to it. Dr. Misra, thanks for joining us on this month's Space Policy Edition. Glad you're here. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me, Casey. One of your uh, many areas of interest that I want to start with today, and I hope we'll touch on a number of them, is the idea of policy implications of active SETI, or METI, as you call it. And before we get into that paper that I recommend everyone read, we'll link to it in the show notes, let's define exactly what that means. So what's the difference between SETI and active SETI? Sure. Yeah. To active SETI is sort of contrasted with passive SETI. And SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, has traditionally been about uh, building radio telescopes, pointing radio telescopes at the sky towards the extrasolar planetary systems, and looking for radio signals that might be from extraterrestrial civilizations. So the classic thing we're looking for is, you know, narrow band radio signal that would be unlike anything else you'd find. Uh, in any sort of astrophysical, other astrophysical phenomenon. And then SETI has also, early SETI expanded to include lasers, laser pulses as well that might be directed toward Earth. We can talk a little bit more later about other kinds of SETI you could do observing exoplanets, atmospheres, and things like that. But that's still sort of passive in the sense that it's a signal that's there and we're just trying to receive information. Whereas active SETI or METI, messaging to extraterrestrial intelligence, is us taking a more proactive experimental approach by actually transmitting a message, again, probably radio or maybe optical as a laser, towards systems of interest with the goal of you know, attracting attention of anyone that might be on the other end and maybe eliciting a reply. So that tends to bring about more, let's say, strong opinions, the, the active SETI version, the messaging for extraterrestrial intelligence. Let's summarize a few of those. What are some of the general reluctant arguments <laughs> for, for actively looking out and announcing Earth's existence to other potential civilizations? Well, we don't really know what the consequences of contact with extraterrestrials would be at all. I guess that, yeah, that's the point of your paper, but we'll get into that. One of the concerns is that this could be very, very harmful, a very negative thing. You know, the classic, you know, aliens will receive this signal and get upset about it and or, or they didn't know about our presence, perhaps. And then they come and, and for whatever reason, we go extinct because of, you know, an alien attack or just we're, we're displaced by them or, or something like that. So a lot of people are worried that maybe this won't end well for Earth. You thought about this in this paper, kind of the, the policy implications of, of radio detectability of Earth. And, and you did something really interesting. You make this logistical proof that it's a fundamentally unknowable outcome of the the consequences of an of a SETI contact basically so let's let's just walk through that and then because the implications are really interesting as a function of that right we can't as, even assuming they're out there <laughs> the, the value of contact to the civilization you try to quantify so tell us why that's unknowable first and then let's look at the implications for why that is well, an extraterrestrial civilization, if they are out there, there is no way for us to predict how another species will respond that we know nothing about until we have actually discovered them. 
So the only way, if you want to know how a, a hypothetical civilization would respond to a signal that we send them, the only way to know that is to first know something about them. So if we you know, had spacecraft around their home world and we were studying them and we knew something about their biology and something about their society, then we could actually make predictions. We could do you know, extraterrestrial sociology kind of thinking. But without any information about that, you know, all we have is life on Earth to go from. We could maybe make some very basic guesses about life elsewhere. Maybe it's carbon-based. Maybe it uses water. Those are pretty good guesses. And we can't even say that that's true for sure. But just because you're a carbon-based water-using life form, does that mean you will get upset when a radio message reaches your planet from another one? There's no way to know that. So, so the only way you can actually resolve this uncertainty is to know something about them. And so without that, we don't know if they will be, you know, if this will be harmful to us, if this will help us, if this will be just sort of irrelevant to us. The idea that, you know, this is going to be all bad is a little bit projecting from our, our own perspectives of human history to something that is truly unknown. Right. And that, that's something I want to touch on in a bit, because I think that's a fascinating aspect of SETI in particular, and, and then going even to METI, is assumption based upon assumption, based upon assumption, based on our very, as you point out, limited understanding <laughs> of, of what life is. But I think it's really interesting that the very fact that we can't know, and it's not just that we don't know, it's that you argue that we cannot know until we detect another civilization what the implications to us will be as a human society actually has implications for the policies that we undertake as a species for this and and in your paper you, you outline the three different approaches that are fall out of this idea that the consequences are fundamentally unknowable and and i'll just outline the big three and then i'd like to address them in turn you call it precautionary malevolence, basically assuming that the outcome is bad. Assumed benevolence, kind of the opposite, the, the more Clarkian idea that we're that they're basically gods and will benefit us as a society from their uh, wisdom and knowledge. Or preliminary neutrality, that fundamentally contact is so unlikely to occur, there's no real risk one way or the other, and it should be treated with that kind of you know, because it's so unlikely, we we prioritize it accordingly. I want to start with this malevolence, and we, we've already kind of touched on this. And, and this tends to be the assumption granted to the existence of other civilizations by most of Medi's critiques, that it will be bad. And something that I find really interesting as a consequence of, if that is the case, if that is truly what people believe, you argue that Active SETI is already too narrow of a definition in terms of announcing Earth's presence or a human's presence. So to talk about that, why, why are we already announcing ourselves beyond just the electromagnetic spectrum? And what would we need to do if we really take this seriously? Right, right, right. Well, so, so I'll start even with the electromagnetic spectrum. So with METI or active SETI, the concern is about, you know, intention. If you a radio transmitter or a laser to space, and you transmit intentionally, is that somehow different than the other radio waves we're putting out into space? 
we, we can get into that philosophical question if we want, but, but from just a, a technical perspective, it's just how much you know, energy in radio waves or optical lasers are going out from Earth. It doesn't really matter from the receiver's end what the intention was. And so if you look at Earth, the loudest signals coming from Earth are military radar. And it's pretty hard to get any many, or at least so far any many attempts have not really been brighter than those military radars. There is one or two messages from the Arecibo telescope that were transmitted out uh, towards a globular cluster. Frank Drake was part of this. And that was approaching the strength of some of the military transmissions. There's also, you know, cell, cell phone towers are, are pretty weak, but they're going out there. So it just depends what you're listening for. But really, television and radio uh, transmission towers are still there, even with, you know, the era of fiber optic cables. They're increasing in number, both in developing countries, but also you know, in countries like the U.S. You know, we have digital transmission now of TV signals. All of those things form the background leakage radiation emanating from Earth. And so without doing any active signaling, those are techno signatures that our planet is emitting that could be observable by anyone looking at us. Now there's other things too. So like say we went radio quiet, we, we go all fiber optic cables and, and the military no longer needs to use radar to locate objects in space. We, we still have pollution in our atmosphere that could be detectable. Things like chlorofluorocarbons, which are you know, part of the destroying the ozone layer, those stay in the atmosphere for a long time. And some of these missions that are looking at exoplanet atmospheres to look for biosignatures, these are astrobiological missions to look for life. Well, something like pollution is an atmospheric technosignature. It's, it's something life does, but it, it's life-making technology, which then makes something detectable in the atmosphere. And so there's other forms of pollution you could think about looking for. There's, you know, you could observe city lights, the high pressure and low pressure sodium lights in particular, would have a, a very discernible spectral signature through a space telescope. You could look for an orbiting debris disk of satellites, whether they're functioning or they're you know broken dust or things like that. So you know those are some examples. There are things that are on Earth now that would give away the presence of technology. And that's aside from life. There's other biosignatures too, but the technology for sure is something that's evident on Earth without us needing to send any messages. So in a sense, we are we're doing a passive slash active SETI program already. Like we're passively actively present by the fact that as all these other variations you point out, our technology is detectable. And right. If, right. Yeah. This is why I don't worry so much about the question of intention. Like just in, in some sense, if you were to intentionally double the detectability of earth, then I think the intention matters because without doing that, you haven't changed it much. But with, with all the existing MEDI projects, you're talking about adding a minuscule amount to this, this omnipresent leakage. So it doesn't really matter to me if we're doing this intentionally or not. We are signaling. There, is, there are detectable technosignatures going out, whether we mean to or not. And, and I guess that's the interesting aspect then. If, if people are truly concerned about the existential risk, which I do see a lot of the fact that we are detectable. And again, they tend to, I think, conceptually limit it to messaging SETI. But you know, to take your argument as accurate, which I do, <laughs> that really requires then that we do more than just not actively message. If they're truly concerned, then the policy conclusion is that globally we should be trying to mask our presence at every conceivable, detectable 
way that our technology exists. So somehow masking our atmospheric composition, somehow masking or not using these military radars, suppressing all this type of E&M leakage, it, this really goes beyond just not actively messaging then if people are truly concerned about this. If you were truly concerned about that above all else, then yes, you, you would have to take such extreme positions for sure. Uh, I don't think anybody's arguing for that, though. But but sort of at that naive level, then yes, that's that's the implication. Well, I mean, I, they're not arguing. And I think this is then revealing in terms of when you look at people's actual, you know, are people making a, an active argument based on a broad understanding of the issue? Or is it kind of, uh, I wouldn't say disingenuous is way too strong of a word, but just not fully taking their arguments to their natural conclusion. if people really assume there's a fundamental existential risk, long-term risk to humanity about active messaging, they should then be doing these other things. I think that follows personally. I don't want to put you into a corner with this because yeah. you, you're much more active in this field than I am. But that's the interesting consequence to me, policy speaking, that they should then be arguing for some... That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you can even extend uh, some like degrowth to like to bring humans back into the Stone Age in case... Or at least to look like we're in the Stone Age, just in case there's some malevolent technological force out there that is looking for us, uh, whether we're actively messaging or not. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, that, that is kind of the implication. And so one of the ideas that, that I work on, that I suggest in one of my papers, is sort of a working hypothesis. The idea that the benefits of you know, communicative technology on Earth and, and the, the, the consequences of those, that those benefits outweigh a, any consequences from potential extraterrestrial contact. So like, yes, we're, we're putting radio signals out, but some of those are for, you know, early weather warnings that help save lives. And so it's better to do that and risk a little bit of exposure and detectability rather than not have a satellite system and have people die whenever there's a storm, just in case there's an alien invasion in the future, right? So that's sort of the, the trade-off, but you don't really know that. It's a working hypothesis. You can't say that is, is true, but I think that working hypothesis is what a lot of people operate under. And so under that hypothesis, you say like, well, we want our satellite system for early storm warning, and maybe we want the military to do what they need to do to protect us, but don't go and do something that's just intended to message extraterrestrials because that is unnecessarily increasing the detectability of Earth. And even if it's only by a little bit, I think just from that point of view, any amount is more than you need because it is kind of accepting that like, yes, our, our early warning weather detection system could be the thing that brings an extraterrestrial invasion, but the trade-off is worth it. I don't think anyone's really saying it like this, but I think <laughs> yeah. this is, is, is sort of how, how they're thinking is that we do want to keep the technology we have on earth because it's important, but we don't want to do extra. We don't want, don't want to increase our detectability simply for the purpose of signaling extraterrestrials because that would just make it potentially more likely to be seen. Yeah. Well, this is where I think the, the, the reducto ad absurdium argument is actually quite revealing in that do people really truly honestly hold this opinion versus that they there's something about actively messaging that I think people may just find distasteful or unpleasant or unsettling 
then that's what they're reacting to more than the concept itself, let's say, at the end of the day. Before, I, I could talk about this for 20 more minutes, but let's talk about the other two consequences of your fundamental unknowability of engagement with another uh, civilization. Uh, so we talked about this kind of presumed malevolence and the consequences of that. Let's talk about the opposite, the benevolent civilization that's out there. This is where we hit some kind of Sagan-esque or Clarkian engagement with a another civilization, and they bestow us with great knowledge or benefits to society. And we take away, like, there's some good inherent in it. What do you believe are the consequences of, if we truly believe this is the case, what should we be doing as a society if we do presume benevolence out there? I mean, if you presume that there is a benevolent civilization out there in contact with them would be good and maybe maybe transformatively good for us, then we sort of have an obligation to do SETI and METI, to find them. And maybe the only obligation, the only limitation would be, you know, cost. Maybe you don't want to put all our money into SETI and METI if we want to, you know, solve things like cancer and climate change and other things on Earth. So this is one of those prioritization issues. But then, you know, with, within the costs that are available, then that would be a priority if we really believed that that contact would be good for us. You can imagine, I mean, when I think about the good, you know, th there's, there's everything from just the knowledge that they exist, which I find, I think would be beneficial to us. We don't know how, if this sustain, if this trajectory that we're on um, of, of a populated, energy intensive, technological world where we have nuclear weapons and such, we don't know how long we can make that last. If we find other civilizations that exist and have lasted for these geologic time periods with their technology, that would give us confidence that this is something that can be done and, and that that trajectory is something that we, we, we can maybe find a sustainable landing point in. But, you know, you can imagine there's really sort of no limit to the other types of benefits you could imagine that this could bring knowledge about how to solve, solve other uh, global problems or just us being in contact now with, you know, what's been called the Galactic Club. If there are technological species populating the galaxy or the universe, then, you know, we, we join that club and, and, you know, we become something more than just what kind of humans we are now. It's, you know, maybe a new stage in, in evolution. Or we just have, you know, someone to, to communicate with and we can exchange information and maybe it's only interesting to physicists and, and mathematicians, but you would probably uh, learn an awful lot about physics and math and that would transform our world. Yeah, you have kind of a helpful thought experiment equation that you include in this paper to quantify the magnitude of the benefits or consequences minus the cost of, of achieving them. And I was reminded, we, we were both at a, a workshop the other week and I said I was reminded of this concept of Pascal's wager when you start looking at to take again the extremes the infinite good versus infinite bad potential here but if there's an infinite good or very 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 high benefit towards a successful engagement with a benevolent civilization Pascal's wager is something similar which is that there's you know you might as well believe in a higher power because heaven is so great you might as you know there's no consequence you know if, if non-existence is this is the opposite go for it you know and, and then you're really lucked out with your if that's the case and so the these like large infinities or large benefits really start to in my mind pull you into 
you might as well put something into this effort because even a low probability, nearly infinite benefit is ways in its favor to pursue. And I guess this kind of pulls you in a similar type of compulsion that the opposite Adam Serdium I was arguing would be, right? That if, if there's really some galactic club out there that'll gift us with high technology or insights into fundamental physics or open up new avenues for human flourishing, then really we have a not just a opportunity, but a, an ethical responsibility to put a lot into this and really go for it. Because if we don't, then it's, we're just leaving this on the table, you know, as a, as a civilization. I mean, does that ring true with you or would you hesitate on that conclusion? I mean, if you're going to assume that contact would be benevolent and good for us, then yes, there is a, an obligation. I mean, you could even imagine if, if that's true again, that, that there is our extraterrestrials and, and that contact would be beneficial for us. You could imagine future generations sort of blaming us maybe for not starting SETI and MEDI soon enough. Yeah. If they discover that there's something out there and and some major developments in Earth could have gone very differently if that contact had been established much sooner. I'm not saying that is what I believe, but I think that that is a, <laughs> a that that's a, a that follows from the assumption that, that contact must necessarily be good, then then there is some obligation to to do that. Well, I don't even know if it has to be good, just that the fact that it could be. Even to me, the potential... I wrote a white paper a few years ago for the uh, Planetary Science Decadal Survey, just kind of taking a similar, again, broad stroke, similar kind of logical argument for the pursuit of even biosignatures and finding something in our own solar system of living life. The consequences to our knowledge serve almost as a step function in terms of our understanding of biology. And the potential benefit of that could be so great in terms of insights into, you know, medicine, our existence and, and life elsewhere, that the vast uncertainty of itself, but the when you're talking about an uncertainty of something so beneficial, again, I still think you're compelled to pursue it to, to some reasonable degree. So I guess I'm giving away my cards here. I'm pretty sympathetic to even the potential for benevolence right, is worth right. the, the consequences of a finding a malevolent civilization. If, and I would say add this as a rub to your equation, like there, there's a cost, there's a negative cost to, or an opposite signed cost of, you know, our own civilization is perfectly capable of self-destruction on its own. So given that fact, if we can mitigate our own self-destructive tendencies even by the mere knowledge of another civilization. I think that starts to balance your equation out here a little bit, that it's not just that otherwise we exist in stasis as a human civilization, that our own we have our own instability itself that may be mitigated by outside existence of another civilization. Does that make sense? Is that, yeah, are no, you tracking I, with that? I, I do agree with that, yeah. And you know, I think the one thing I would add is when we think about the, you know, the passive search for, for biosignatures um, or, or technosignatures, we actually can't assume that that will necessarily be beneficial. As a scientist, now I'm very interested and I'm pretty sure it would benefit science. But what would be the consequences to others if we were to find that? There's been a lot that's been written about this, but, but we can't predict, you know, what, how, would, how would the world's religions react if we, you know, found strong evidence of life on another planet? And then if we're talking about evidence of technology, 
especially if we're talking about receiving a message, the, the knowledge of there's an exoplanet with pollution in it. But if we take sort of the original SETI position and maybe there's a beacon that's being beamed toward Earth and we receive that and we can decode it kind of like in movie Contact, um, how do we know that information is not going to be harmful to us? Um, there, there's, and, and that could be anything from information itself that is, is, you know, maybe trying to trick us to destroy ourselves versus just our inability to handle whatever the information is. That potential harm to me doesn't seem actually less likely than aliens flying to our planet to destroy us, which I, I find very Hollywood-esque. I can't say it won't happen. But the idea of a malevolent remote message seems about as likely as a malevolent, you know, invading force. And so in that sense, the active versus set passive dimension is also diminished a little bit. It's are we ready for this knowledge or not is, is sort of the question. Yeah, I guess we shouldn't underestimate our, again, our own self-destructive tendencies here or our own inability, you know, it, <laughs> our species centric kind of problems of, of integrating new information. And and it was interesting. I mean, I think that there's a difference too between some very far away biosignature detection versus an in situ biosignature detection. I think so. Or biological detection, because I think one one is a whole new one, one is a whole level of range of information versus a suggestion of information. And I've seen critiques of the fact that a, an exoplanetary biosignature detection is effectively meaningless in the sense that how do you ever resolve it? 100%. If, yeah, yeah. If we if we detect, you know, even really compelling exoplanetary biosignature, there's going to be huge error bars on the signal first. There will be, you know, several decades of debate among the scientific community as to what this means and how do we take follow-up measurements. So, for science it would be very exciting, but for for, you know, the non-scientific world, it may not be this really transformative discovery and it may be you know kind of this neutral effect where where it just goes into the textbooks and and it's this ongoing process so yeah if we were to find you know artifact on the moon that would probably resonate <laughs> a lot more with more people hi y'all lavar burton here through my roles on Star Trek and Reading Rainbow, I have seen generations of curious minds inspired by the strange new worlds explored in books and on television. I know how important it is to encourage that curiosity in a young explorer's life. And that's why I'm excited to share with you a new program from my friends at the Planetary Society. It's called the Planetary Academy, and anyone can join. Designed for ages 5 through 9 by Bill Nye and the curriculum experts at the Planetary Society, the Planetary Academy is a special membership subscription for kids and families who love space. Members get quarterly mailed packages that take them on learning adventures through the many worlds of our solar system and beyond. Each package includes images and factoids, hands-on activities, experiments and games, and special surprises. A lifelong passion for space, science, and discovery starts when we're young. Give the gift of the cosmos to the explorer in your life. Something I've learned is being, let's say, science adjacent. Uh, I'm married to a professional scientist and I have my, my undergraduate degrees in science. But that there's always some very irritating abiological path to generate biosignature-like signals <laughs> in, in general, it seems like this rule. 
let me move on to your to your last of your three conclusions based on this unknowability of of the contact, which is this preliminary neutrality. And I think this is functionally what I would characterize as where we stand, if, if that's a correct way to put this, which is that, and you characterize it as contact with an extraterrestrial intelligence is it's just fundamentally unlikely to occur. So we may as well kind of continue it, but not really put too much resources into it. And we just shouldn't worry too much about it. Is, is that kind of the accurate way to characterize this one, the neutrality? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, personally, this is where I've come around to, you know, I, I would like to believe, in, you know, that contact would be beneficial. That, that's what I want to believe. Um, but, but my reasons for that are just speculative and guesses. And, and so, yeah, where, what I'm left with is, is this neutrality option. And so, yeah, in that in equation, you know, it's, it's the value of MEDI is equal to, you know, the probability times the magnitude minus the cost. But for neutral, for the neutrality uh, option, we just assume the probability is basically zero. It's unlikely to occur. So the value of many is just based on the cost. And so on one hand, that's an argument for not doing it because like, and, and I would say that's an argument for probably not investing government resources in, into many because it's probably unlikely to succeed. It's just really going to be a cost sink. You know, at best, the benefits are going to be educational. For, for teaching people about, you know, SETI astrobiology, things like that. Um, but if you have some philanthropist who decides that that's a good use of their money, well, fine. There's a lot of other projects that the government doesn't do that people may or may not think are important. You know, Jeff Bezos and others are building like a giant uh, mountain-sized clock that will, will tick, you know, once every 10,000 years. So do you think that's a good idea or not? I mean, I actually think it's kind of cool because it's helping with our long-term thinking. And Medi does the same thing, but I'm glad that my tax dollars aren't going toward the long now clock, you know, that's a private thing. So I think it's sort of an argument that like, it's, it's not a, a somewhere that science should really prioritize and put a lot of resources in, especially when it's public funds. But it's not saying we should prohibit SETI or Medi. And if you've got the funds and you want to do it, well, hey, hey go for it. But don't expect that you're probably going to find it. You know, I'm actually surprised that we haven't seen more wealthy individuals attempt an active SETI message at this point. I was, I was part of a project in 2012 to do this, and it was funded by some, you know, it was a, a wealthy uh, investor. He was a fashion photographer, actually, in New York City. You know, there, there's only so much money you throw at it before you know, he was trying to make it into sort of a revenue generating uh, process where people could you know like have a crowdsourced message and the model we had was everybody in the world got one free message and if you wanted more you would pay to add your message to to the stream and um, you know there was a lot of issues with it and i think the business model was, was a little bit difficult to to fund the whole thing so in the end we only got one transmission out and again this is really the problem with medi no many attempt has ever been repeated. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just like the wow signal. We found the wow signal once. We never followed up on it again. Even if it was real, we can never know that for sure. And so we want to really send a beacon out. You have to repeat it, you know, even once a month or once a year, just some amount of time. You have to repeat the same message. And so, yeah, we never got to that. And then, you know, the investor lost interest. You know, yeah, what, what, what is there to get out of it is, is a question. But 
we have this breakthrough initiatives now. They're doing passive SETI. They have talked about the messaging problem. So we'll see where it goes. A uh, bold move to want to monetize active SETI with a business model. I had never even considered that as a as a feasible thing. I was thinking about it in terms of like a self-monument. Again, so very wealthy people tend to be relatively interested in themselves and, and ego-focused. And the idea of that you send a message that could be one day heard and you would be an emissary for Earth. Like to me, that's a very seductive thing as an egocentrist. But the fact that we haven't seen it, and also relative, I mean, how much does it really cost at the end of the day, if you're a billionaire, to have a repeated signal going out once a year through some existing radio array? It doesn't strike, I mean, it must be in the millions of dollars, right? Yeah, 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 yeah right, right. So, but, I mean, it's, it's relatively modest, so again... Re- relatively modest, but even that amount of money, you know, there's, there's a whole branch of, 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 you know, scholarship called, uh, you know, effective philanthropy. And so these people who have this much money, they pay attention to the research to know how they can effectively spend their money. And so, um, I mean, it is interesting, though, that you have, you know, uh, Yuri Milner and others that are putting money into Breakthrough Listen to do this massive SETI search. But at the same time, they're interested in the other deliverables you get out of that. There's other ancillary science that's been published. You know, they've discovered fast radio bursts and other things. There's a couple people that have, you know, gotten their PhDs through this process. Um, they've done a lot of other programs. So even if the 10 years end and they find nothing and all they can do is put you know, upper limits on the presence of transmitters, there are other deliverables that came to science. And I think with Medi, it's a little harder. There is some work you can do in terms of developing you know, a, a language that can be encoded for interstellar communication. But sort of the ancillary discoveries, you know, what other astronomy do you uncover? I think there's less that you get with many. And I suppose the timescales are so great that mm-hmm. an individual is very unlikely to ever benefit their own ego from a discovery. It's just that's, the that's potential. Right. <laughs> that, that's right. Now, I have, a, I have a paper and then a chapter in my, my book uh, titled Sovereign Mars. The chapter and the paper are called Deep Altruism. And I, I look at the, that exact question, whether it's I, I focus mostly on you know, people going to Mars and building a long-term settlement and how could you fund that through an altruistic means. But it's the same for Medi. You can't have, you know, what I call shallow altruism if you're going to do that. It can't be for benefiting oneself. And you can't really even think of it as benefiting your direct descendant. It has to be sort of a greater sense of this is for the future and what could motivate that. And I think there are actually some of these eccentric billionaires who have that kind of view to an extent, but nobody seems to have applied it to many yet. Yeah. And I mean, I guess also from an ego perspective, aliens aren't going to care who you are, (laughs) probably who you are, right? It's all in the human context. And again, you'll be long gone by the time they they notice it. All right. So maybe not the most effective ego stroking opportunity here. Looking through your three positions that one can take on a on this kind of active steady thing i i think you're right i mean i think we're in this preliminary neutrality but i find that just so unsatisfying at a certain level and maybe that makes me a bad objective policy person for the purposes of this discussion but i'm really again kind of drawn to the second option of the of the benevolence and the potential inherent in it but I want to key you in on, the, I mean, we kind of danced around it. Are you number three? Where do you ultimately personally fall in terms of where you would want our position to be given the unknowability of this? 
I personally fall on, on number three, the neutrality. But when I think about, you know, just what kind of constraints we may be able to put about this, speculative constraints, it leads me toward the second one, benevolence versus malevolence. So, you know, if I think about what would it take if, if we're going to be destroyed by an alien civilization, I mean, okay, there's the cultural collapse from receiving information. But if we're really talking about messaging in particular is a unique existential threat, then that is they notice us and then they come and visit us and then there's some sort of catastrophe from that contact. And to me, if you are a civilization that can travel interstellar distances, you certainly don't need to come to Earth for our water. You've figured out, if you need water, you figured out how to provide water on your on your journey and your food and, and your energy. So I, I have a hard time believing it's that they need some resources on our planet or that they need, you know, our star or our asteroid belt or, or, or something like that. If, if you can do that journey, you probably have a way to, to manage your resources over those long time scales. So now if you're that kind of long lived civilization, so any civilization we find is probably not going to be one that just evolved technology and then all of a sudden they receive our message and then they fly out over here. So they're going to be a, a long-lived civilization. This is true for most things we see in astronomy. Most phenomenon that you can observe are long-lived. So if you're long-lived, I have to assume that means that they have evolved past their tendencies to self-destruction because that's just self-evident. If you are around, you haven't destroyed yourself. So if they have nukes, they know how to manage them. So that doesn't mean they wouldn't attack us, but it means they would be different than us. And a lot of the arguments for Medi being risky points to human history and points to the idea that like, well, in Western civilizations, have encountered you know less advanced civilizations it's always ends poorly for the less advanced civilization either because they were directly attacked or they were outcompeted or they got smallpox or any number of out outcomes from history and i think that's not a perfect analogy because if you're a long-lived civilization that can travel interstellar distances it's different you have a different set of, of ethical principles that, that you're, you're operating under, if they do decide to attack us, it would be for very different reasons than that Westerners attacked you know, natives in, in whatever countries they, they visited. I can't prove then that that means that the contact will be beneficial, but I can think of more reasons that it's more likely to be beneficial than harmful in, in that sense. I think the harmful contact would be if they come and they're peaceful and we're just not ready for it at all and it's more of a cultural collapse and that's more like it's on us rather than it's on them and if that's the case then i'm also worried about seti not just Medi. i mean if we're not ready for it th then maybe we shouldn't be listening maybe we're not ready for this at all <laughs> right <laughs> that's kind of there's not a huge distinction between the two uh, but you say something there that i think that i've been turning over in my head quite a bit recently this the the utility of historical analogy for fundamentally ahistorical events of a SETI detection or an active messaging uh, engagement with another civilization i think we have to be so careful and cautious to draw from history because by doing so we take for granted cultural civilizational, technological, geographical contexts that probably are really idiosyncratic. 
and unique combinations. And, and otherwise, we, we kind of assert that they're universal. And we have, as we know, I think building up on this hierarchy of universality, I mean, we know physics works everywhere the same way geology probably does. Biology may be similar. <laughs> you start getting, but culture, probably not. And, and we've seen such a variety of cultures on Earth that even no longer exist anymore. As someone who works in the SETI field uh, professionally, how do you approach the use of historical analogy? And, and do, would you critique and say that it, a lot of people overuse them to a point where they're no longer useful? I think some people do overuse them. I don't think we can actually use much at all from historical patterns of how humans have behaved. Human sociology isn't probably going to tell us much of anything about alien civilization. We can maybe look at physical constraints like physical sustainability. You can't exist above your carrying capacity for an indefinite amount of time. You're limited by the amount of energy coming on your planet from the sun or the host star. There's really basic things like that. Yeah, otherwise, I don't, I don't think you can really say much. You're in the SETI field. I mean, I'd say one of the a very careful and, and engaged thinker in this area, and you publish a lot in it. And I feel like the, the field itself has been really thriving in the last few years. But it's also a field that, for lack of a better term, maybe engages a lot of maybe dilettantes or people who don't engage as, as deeply or professionally on this. And that's where I feel these applications of analogy tend to be misused. They're asserted pretty broadly through people who may not have a grounding in, in the physics or, or astronomy or, or things that I mean, and it's not wrong to do that necessarily, but it maybe doesn't add a lot to the conversation. Is that a fundamental frustration of being a SETI professional uh, or scientist that a lot of people or a good example of when you're a graphic designer, everyone has an opinion on whether that logo should be what color it should be. And it doesn't matter if you're a professional or not. Is that an ongoing issue with this field that it's so engaging that it invites non-experts to opine? Uh, I mean, to some definitively. extent, but, but that's that's okay to some extent. Like because you know, sure, if, if if my work gets covered in a news article and I read the comment section, everybody's got their armchair explanation for you know what's going on. But that's okay. You know, those people aren't really filling up the conference halls when I go to a scientific conference. So those events are really, you know, scientific professionals talking to each other. And the discussion in the journals, peer-reviewed journals have, have a check in the sense that there's peer review and editorial oversight to make sure that any ideas getting in the journals are up to date and, and not kind of rehashing these sort of comment section type arguments. So in that sense, I don't mind. I think that's actually a good sign that people are engaged uh, and interested. But, you know, say, say two things. So the one thing is, I think what we can learn from history, the main thing is what are detectable techno signatures that humans have done? That, that is a, a concrete, like we have put pollution in the atmosphere. We have put satellites up. And then you can think about what could we do based on technology we know about or at least have theorized. But, but, but that's different than human sociology. I do see, this is positive and, and, and sort of has, has some implications too. Um, you know, SETI is, and in technosignatures is inherently interdisciplinary. And so we do get people from non-physical sciences coming to these discussions. And that's important. That's great. You have to have that. You have to have 
historians and anthropologists and archaeologists and philosophers and, and everyone else in addition to the astronomy. And I will fully admit that, you know, I did a postdoc in ethics, so I, I like to cross-train. I recognize that some of my science colleagues have a harder time engaging with the humanities and social sciences. And so there does need to be more effort to engage scientists in that. But what I do notice also is that some of the social scientists and humanities scholars don't always engage in learning the, the physical science. And you don't have to be learn the detailed math, just sort of at a qualitative level, because you're talking about the difference between a radio transmission versus an optical signal versus seeing, you know, spectra of pollution in exoplanet atmosphere. So if that all just sounds like mumbo jumbo to you, then that's okay, because I'm a scientist and I had to learn those things. But, but one can learn those things without having to get a science degree, it just takes a little bit of time. And then you can have a more productive conversation. So I think sometimes even within you know, the, the SETI meetings, you get a little bit of people talking past each other because someone may apply some ideas from sociology or anthropology. And there are some aspects of that that are valid and some aspects of that that are kind of neglecting the astrophysical realities of the context scenario. And so I think that's where we have to do more work is you have to have these interdisciplinary conversations, but you can't overly anthropomorphize them. And, and sometimes it's the social scientists that are arguing that the scientists are anthropomorphizing. But at the same time, when you overapply history to an extraterrestrial civilization, you are also then anthropomorphizing. And, and so it's a very difficult problem. Again, there's very little you can really know. Yeah, I mean, I feel like perhaps the real value of historical analogy would be in terms of how our civilization would react given a con, you know, that's sure. where it becomes sure. more relevant. Versus yeah. apply. I think there has to be a, a certain amount of significant humility in understanding what a different intelligence, much less civilization, would be, given that we have struggled with even acknowledging different types of intelligence on this planet or with other, you know, non-human animals to, to varying degrees. And or even, again, the, ignoring various ways in which civilization, we have a presentism bias. Right. And we have this idea that what exists to us now is natural and inerrant versus a function of our time. And all of that, I think, can play into our, our response aspect of this. Now, I guess one thing I had raised the other week that I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on, which is speaking of kind of societal engagement with new intelligence, we may be at a cusp of this right now with our own self-devised artificial intelligence. Do you see any useful analogies there for how our society is going to be engaging with uh, computational artificial intelligence to a potential discovery of a pre-existing extraterrestrial intelligence? Not really. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Not right. yet. Like, like a hypothetical, you know, artificial general intelligence, if we were to have it, maybe then. What we have now, I don't even like to call it artificial intelligence. You know, in, in science, Large language, they, they yeah, call it, I mean, right. machine learning. Yeah, yeah. you know, like, like it's, it's really, you know, sort of a random number generator with fancy regression. It's cool. You know, like the ChatGPT thing, it's neat. And there's a lot of interesting science that can be solved. But it's, it's really, yeah, having a very large data set and high computational computing power allows you to to find really interesting patterns that can pass a Turing test. So that's interesting, but it, it's not really 
there's no thinking going on behind it. And if you play with some of this technology, it, you don't have to play with it very long to get blatantly wrong answers. You know, I asked it to write a, a chat GPT to write a biography of myself and it awarded me awards I had never won before. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in that sense, I don't think that that technology is really there yet to teach us about how we would communicate with another intelligence. It, it, it's a tool, but I don't really consider it intelligent. It's not a thinking machine. But I guess it, people are acting as if it is. And to me, that's the interesting part. I, I completely agree with you, by the way. I, there, there's no inherent knowledge for that quote-unquote intelligence to, to bequeath to us because it's just this facsimile of engagement. But the idea is that people consider it intelligent and therefore there's been kind of a freak out, at least among a certain engagement class of, of individuals. And that to me tells me something. It, even at the hint of a possible non-human intelligence, there creates quite a bit of uncertainty. And doesn't that tell us something about what a future contact situation could be like? Maybe a little bit, but, but you know, the, that technology is based on things that humans have written in all of our languages. So when you interact with it, it, it kind of is a human intelligence. It's human words. And so there's, there's really nothing new or foreign that it's going to tell us. It's really just spitting back, you know, our, our collective words back at us and, and you know, chopped up and rearranged. So may, maybe, there's, maybe there's some things that one could do. You could think about setting up some sort of SETI-METI experiment, you know, classrooms in two countries and, you know, someone receives a message and the other one has to decode it. And maybe you could use this technology to to help with that to some extent. But I think it's really telling us more about ourselves than about what a foreign intelligence would be like. Given the fact that you fall into this preliminary neutrality perspective on, on METI, and I'll expand this a bit to, to SETI as well, do you feel that public institutions in the U.S. and abroad are spending an appropriate amount of money to support, I'd say even more broadly, search for life activities? Or do you feel like there's an underappreciation or underinvestment in those, given the vast uncertainty of their outcome? I think there's an underinvestment, but it's growing. You know, NASA for a while was not supporting any kind of technosignature research. They are now. I'm happy to be funded by them to study these problems. It's a very small amount of funding compared to other projects that NASA is doing. And so, you know, what one... I've heard my colleagues make the argument, you know, there's a lot of resources, for example, being put into string theory and testing string theory is, you know, centuries into the future. The implications of, of that are very hard to fathom what we're going to really be able to do with that now. What, what could we do if those resources were dedicated to word technosignatures, for example? Now, I'm not, I think string theory is also interesting, so I'm not coming hard down on string theory, but just as an example of something esoteric, it does seem like there's a, very broad interest in the question of are we alone? Is there life out there? Are, is there technology out there that's not ours? If funding priorities were purely determined based on taxpayer interests, you would imagine that maybe there's more, there would be more resources dedicated to that. But at the same time, NASA just went through this decadal survey process. The National Academies wrote, wrote their, their recommendation in the decadal report. And the flagship mission is the Habitable Worlds Observer Observatory, which would you know be launched in the 2040s, um, so a little ways away. But that would be a mission optimized for characterizing the atmospheres of extrasolar planets. 
you would probably be able to do some technosignature searches with that. And so it's very exciting that NASA and the, the National Academies identify the search for life as one of the key questions to drive the next flagship mission. Uh, because I think that does reflect the, the interest of the taxpayers in what they want to discover. So yeah, of course, I would love to see more, but I think at least the trajectory is going in the right direction. It's interesting you bring that up because it's the Habitable Worlds Observatory is, is very much couched, though, in a much more, I would say, kind of institutionally acceptable framing of the search for life, which is biosignatures rather than, than technosignatures. And politically, as you point out, Congress actually just changed the law to allow NASA to, to do technosignature research before. Again, uh, it had been banned for, for years for doing so. It strikes me actually more of an institutional problem about what's an acceptable scientific inquiry than a political one at this point. And you know, again, you point out string theory, which is deeply accepted, even though it's something inherently untestable with our current technological levels. Why do you think SETI and technosignature research is considered to be more fringe or unacceptable use of scientific research than these other areas that are perhaps equally as esoteric? And is that even a correct way to characterize it? Well, historically, there has been this characterization due to association with, you know, science fiction and, you know, elements of cultural ufology. So when, when you say we're looking for technosignatures, a lot of people, including funding decision makers, may imagine something that they saw in a movie or, or something really uh, whimsical, rather than understanding that there is a, a scientific way of approaching the search. It's less of a problem today. The stigma still exists. Um, one of the points that my colleagues and I like to try to mention is that the technosignatures are biosignatures. It, it's a subset. They're two sides of the same coin. The, the question is, is there life in the universe? And is there life that we could detect? And if we find a biosignature that's water vapor and methane and ozone, great. You know, we found life. If we found a, find a radio signal or pollution in an exoplanet, we found life. And, and in some sense, the technosignatures may be less ambiguous than some of the biosignatures. A narrowband radio signal would be far more suspect for technology than oxygen in an exoplanetary atmosphere. I feel like we've been successful to an extent in convincing other astrobiologists that we are on the same team, that technosignatures are just an additional way of expanding the scope of what biosignatures we are interested in. Once in a while, we'll still get a review from a paper where we've done, you know, good work and showing into you know, the detectability of a spectral technosignature. And some reviewer will just push back and say this is not serious work without really even evaluating the work in and of itself. They're just against the whole idea of technosignatures. So this exists still. There is some of this institutional uh, resistance to the idea. And yeah, it's from this historical cultural association. Yeah. And, and you are on a paper that makes an interesting argument, in fact, that technosignatures may actually be more prevalent than biosignatures by the fact that technosignatures can spread themselves more effectively throughout the galaxy than, than pure biology. Is that a correct way to summarize? That That's right. They, they, yeah. they could be. Yeah. So we have to look. We don't, we don't know. But um, yeah, the, the, one of the purposes of that paper was because some you know, scientists will say like, well, okay, maybe there could be technosignatures, but they're not going to be as common as biosignatures. And because what they're thinking is that, well, it's hard to get life to evolve on a planet. So that's already a difficult step. And then it's probably hard for life 
to evolve technology. So probably you're going to have a lot of planets that are uninhabited and then a few more that have life but no technology. And then there's a very, very small number with technology. And so we should focus on the ones that have life, you know, microorganisms and things like that. But yeah, the argument we make is like, even if that is the case, once you get technology on a planet, it can go off world. And so the, the technology can spread and could be the most ubiquitous signal, the most ubiquitous biosignature out there. And then, of course, the technosignatures themselves may be easier to recognize as anomalous due to life rather than some of the biosignatures, which may have a lot of false positives. Yeah, I mean, here in this solar system, the number of planets with a technosignature outnumbers the number of planets with the biosignature. That's right. right? Right? right. <laughs> Very weakly, but still technically true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, several planets. I mean, you know, yeah. we count as Mars, but, um, you know, orbiters around other planets and um, landers. So, yeah. We are out of time, unfortunately, and I have only addressed maybe a third of the questions I had for you. So you'll have to come back in the future. But for our listeners who are really intrigued by some of the ideas we've talked about today, or even some, you know, you have a new book that we didn't even really discuss on. Uh, how can they find you? And maybe also, what is this new book that you mentioned briefly earlier that folks can read? Sure. Yeah. So you can find me on the internet, huckmisra.net, H-A-Q-Q-M-I-S-R-A.net. And I'm on Twitter at huckmisra. Yeah. My new book is Sovereign Mars, Transforming Our Values Through Space Settlement. And so, yeah, this is not about SETI or METI. This is one of my other interests is the idea of humans going out into space and, you know, establishing permanent settlements on Mars and, and, you know, the moon and asteroids and things like that. And it's really a political science book. It is asking the question, I started with who owns Mars, but really the question I realized is what does sovereignty mean on Mars and what are effective governance structures that would make sense as we go into space, given the political realities of how we have tried to have shared governance in common spaces on Earth. And so, you know, I look at the Outer Space Treaty, the Law of the Seas, the Antarctic Treaty System for what works and what doesn't work and try to draw some implications for, you know, what, what kinds of models might we be able to do on Mars? I look forward to reading that, Jacob. That sounds fascinating to me. And again, we'll have to have you back on to talk about it at some point. But again, I want to thank you for your time and again, encourage our listeners to check out the, the papers we talked about. I'll link to them. They're also linked on your page and there's a whole other host of writing that you've done. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. That was my conversation with Dr. Jacob Hakmisra. Really interesting. Really appreciated his time doing that. Jack, I wanted to say if you think we were to meet a advanced extraterrestrial intelligence tomorrow... How do you think we'd do? We'd come out for the better or come out for the worse? I think we'd come out for the better. Personally, I feel like if we have undeniably found not just life out there in the universe, but intelligent life, mm -hmm. I think it would revolutionize our, our understanding of who we are as a species, uh, where, where we are in the universe, our, our place in space. Now, I do, I do wonder you know, if these extraterrestrial beings that we're finding, if they have a debt limit. <laughs> you would think they you would think advanced, they have maybe figured their it advanced out, knowledge but... they would bequeath us the knowledge to avoid such uh self-defeating issues in the future but <laughs> yeah perhaps i don't know maybe it's you know what it is convergent evolution maybe that's just a universal aspect of all civilization is uh, debt ceiling fights every yep. every couple of years good insight there appreciate that <laughs> i think at the end of the i mean hell i mean you and i work for the planetary society we're saganists clark arthur c clarkian however you want to describe it at heart 
meeting that. I, I mean, how could we not? Again, I think I just have a strong predisposition, I think, to seeing that this would be a net benefit and that we shouldn't be afraid of the dark at the end of the day. We should seek that out. And the potential benefits, I think, are just so hard to express in terms of our self-identity as a species, setting hope, but also, God, how wonderful would it be to learn so much about something new? I think that's at the end of the day. And how comforting, too, to know that there are beings elsewhere in the universe handling maybe the same political turmoil, the same economic systems, the same uh, even physiological needs that we as humans have, to know that that these things we we share in common with other beings would be profound. And I think would, like I said, revolutionize our understanding of of the cosmos and and the the evolution of it. And our place within it. And our place within it. (laughs) All right. Jack, thanks for joining me this month on the Space Policy Edition. Great to be here with you in person in Washington, D.C. We will be back next month on the first Friday of the month. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please share the show. Please rate the show. Please tell your friends all about how great the Planetary Society is. If you like learning about space policy, if you like following this type of news and my analysis, you can get my monthly newsletter, The Space Advocate, for free at planetary.org slash spaceadvocate. And of course, you are encouraged, if you haven't already, to join the Planetary Society at planetary.org slash membership. Thank you again, and Jack, at Astra. Casey, at Astra. Astra.